Hello. Welcome to the Bore You to Sleep podcast. The podcast that will hopefully help you get to sleep. I am going to read an open source book, one that is not particularly interesting, but one that is hopefully boring enough to get you to sleep. Is there something interfering with your happiness or is preventing you from achieving your goals? I know there have been times in my life where I've struggled with sleeplessness, which is why I strive to help people everywhere with theirs. I'm proud to have partnered with a new sponsor, BetterHelp. BetterHelp will assess your needs and match you with your own licensed professional therapist, which doesn't take long at all. It's not a crisis line. It's not self-help. It is professional counselling done securely online. You can schedule weekly video or phone sessions in the comfort of your own home. You can also log in to your account anytime and send a message to your counsellor when you need. You'll have access to a broad range of expertise in BetterHelp's counsellor network which may not be locally available in many areas. BetterHelp is committed to facilitating great therapeutic matches, so they make it easy and free to change counsellors if needed. Visit trybetterhelp.com forward slash bore you to sleep. That's trybetterhelp and join over 500,000 people taking charge of their mental health. Special offer for Boy to Sleep listeners with 10% off your first month at trybetterhelp.com forward slash you to sleep. Tonight's reading comes from The Greatest Heiress in England. The opening chapter looks at the boring life of Mr. Trevor in his wealthy English home. Written by Mrs. Oliphant, the book was published in 1880. My name is Teddy, and I aim to help people everywhere get a good night's rest. Sleep is so important, and my mission is to help you get the rest that you need. The podcast is designed to play in the background while you slowly fall asleep. Special thanks to everyone who continues to support the podcast as a Patreon or a sponsor on Anchor. I'd like to say thank you to some special listeners of the podcast who reached out to me during the week. Ava May, thank you for your lovely comment on Podbean. Jackie O., I appreciate your comment left on iTunes USA. And finally, a massive thank you to Vanessa Wharton for becoming a Patreon and supporting the podcast financially on a monthly basis. Your support means a lot to me and allows me to keep bringing out more episodes. If you haven't had a chance to reach out to me yet, and appreciate the podcast. A lovely way to say thank you is to leave a five-star review in iTunes or your podcast app.
even one sentence helps out. It would also be awesome if you were able to share the podcast with someone you know who may also need a good night's sleep. If you would like, you can say hello at boyyoutosleep.com where you can support the podcast. I'm also on Twitter and Instagram at boyyoutosleep. In the meantime, lie back, relax, and enjoy the readings. The Greatest Heiress in England Chapter 1 A country town, quiet, simple, and dull, chiefly of old construction, but with a few new streets and scattered villas of modern flimsiness, a river flowing through it, dulled and stilled with the frost. Trees visible in every direction, blocking up the horizon and making a background, though only with a confused anatomy of bare branches. To the red houses, not many people about the streets, and these cold, subdued, only brightening a little, with the idea that if the frost held there, might be skating tomorrow. On one side, the high street trended down a slight slope toward the river. On the other, ran vaguely away into a delta of small streets, which, in their turn, led to the common, on the edge of which lay the new district of Farrafield. All towns, it is said, have a tendency to stray and expand themselves toward the west. And this is what happened here. The little new streets, roads, crescents, and places all strayed toward the setting sun. The best and biggest of these, and at the same time, the furthest off of all, was the terrace, a somewhat gloomy row of houses facing toward the common and commanding across the strip of garden which kept them in dignified seclusion from the road of a full of broken expanse of gorse and heather over which the sunsets played affording to these monotonous windows a daily spectacle far more splendid than any official pomp. There were but twelve of these houses, ambitiously built to look like one great Elizabethan mansion, except one or two large, old-fashioned, substantial houses in the marketplace. These were the largest and most pretentious dwellings in the town. The proud occupants considered the pile as a very fine specimen of modern domestic architecture, and its gentility was undoubted. It was the landlord's desire that nobody who worked for his or her living should enter these sacred precincts. It is difficult to keep so noble a resolution 
in a country where so many occupations which are not conspicuous to the common eye live and grow, but still it was an exalted aim. In this town there was a street, and in this street there was a house, and in this house there was a room. After the fairy tale fashion, we may be permitted to bring this history. The house, which was called number six in the terrace, was in no way remarkable externally among its neighbours, but within the constitution of the family was peculiar. The nominal master of the house was a retired clerk of the highest respectability with his equally respectable wife. But it was well known that this excellent couple existed in the terrace merely as ministers to the comfort of an old man who inhabited the better part of the house and whose convenience was paramount over all its other arrangements. There was a link of relationship, it was understood, between the Fords and old Mr. Trevor, and though there was no disparity of social condition between them, yet there was the great practical difference that old Trevor was very rich, and the Fords had no more than sufficient for their homely wants, wants much more humble than those of the ordinary residents in the terrace, who were the elite of the town. This gave a tone of respect to their intercourse on one side, and a kind of superiority on the other, the Fords were of the opinion that old Mr. Trevor had greatly the best of the bargain. He had none of these troubles of a house upon his shoulders, and he had all its advantages. The domestic arrangements which cost Mrs. Ford so much thought cost him nothing but money. He had no care no annoyance about anything, neither taxes to pay, nor servants to look after. And everything went on like clockwork. His tastes were considered in every way, and all things were made subservient to him. When coals or meat rose in value, or when one of the three servants each more troublesome than the other, as it is the nature of maids to be, was disagreeable. What did it matter to old Mr. Trevor? And when that question arose about the borough rate, what had he to say to it? Nothing, absolutely nothing. All this daily burden was on the shoulders of Richard Ford and Susan, his wife. Whereas Mr. Trevor 
had nothing to do but put his hand into his pocket. To some people, the easiest exercise. He had the best of everything, the chief rooms and the most unwearied attendance. And not only for him, but for his two children, who were a still more anxious charge, as Mrs. Ford expressed it, was every good thing provided. Sometimes the excellent couple grumbled, and sometimes felt it hard that, being relations, there should be so much difference. But on the whole, both parties were aware that their own comforts profited by the junction, and the household machinery worked smoothly, with as few jars and as much harmony as is possible to man. At the time this history begins, Mr. Trevor was seated in the drawing room, the best room in the house. The Fords occupied the front parlour below, where the furniture was moderate and homely, but all the skill of the upholsterer had been displayed above. The room had two long windows, looking out over the common. Not at this moment a very cheerful prospect. There was nothing outside but mist and dampness, made more dismal by incipient frost, and full of the sentiment of cold, a chill that went to your heart. The prospect inside was not much adapted to warm or cheer in such circumstances. The windows were cut down to the floor, as is usual in suburban houses, and though the draught has been shut out as much as possible by list and stamped leather, and by the large rugs of silky white fur which lay in front of each window, yet there was still little impertinent whiffs of air blowing about, and the moral effect was still more chilly. It was not an artistic room, according to the fashion of the present day, or one indeed in which any taste to speak of has been shown. The walls were white with gilded ornaments, the curtains were blue, the carpet showed large bouquets of flowers, upon a light ground. There were large prints, very large and not very interesting, royal marriages and christenings, hanging one in the centre of each wall. Thus, it will be seen, there was nothing to distinguish it from a hundred other unremarkable and unattractive apartments of the ordinary British kind. A large folding screen was disposed round the door to keep out the draught, 
and the folding doors which led into Mr. Trevor's bedroom. Behind were veiled with curtains of the same blue as those of the windows. The old man was seated by a large fire in a comfortable easy chair with a writing table within reach of his hand. Mr. Trevor was not a man of imposing presence. He was little and very thin, wrapped in a dark-coloured dressing gown, with a high collar in which he seemed pilloried, and a brown wig which imparted a very aged juvenility to his small and wrinkled face. Grey hairs harmonise and soften wrinkles, but the smooth chin and bright brown locks of this little old man gave him a somewhat elfish appearance, something like that of an elderly bird. He sat with a pen in his hand, making notes upon a large document, opened out upon the writing table, and his actions and a little unconscious chirp, to which he gave vent now and then, increased his resemblance to an alert sparrow. And indeed, it might have been a claw which Mr. Trevor was holding up with a quill in it, and his little air of triumphant success and self-content, his head held on one side, and the dab he made from time to time upon his paper gave him very much the air of a sparrow. He had laid down his times, which hung in a much crumpled condition, like a table cover, over a small round table on his other hand, in order to make this sudden note, whatever it might be, and as he made it, he chuckled. The paper on which he wrote was large blue paper, like that employed by lawyers, and had an air of formality about it. It was smoothed out over a big blotting book, not long enough quite to contain it, and had a dog's ear at the lower corner, which proved a frequent recurrence on the part of the writer to this favourite manuscript. When he had written all that had occurred to him, Mr. Trevor put down his pen and resumed the times, but the interest of the previous occupation carried the day even over that invaluable newspaper, which is as good as a trade to idle persons. He had not gone down a column before he paused, rested his paper on his knee, and chuckled again. Then he leaned over the writing table and read the note he had made, which was tolerably long 
then, with his times in his hand, rose and went to the door, losing himself behind the screen. There he stood for a moment, wrapping his dressing gown around his thin legs with a shiver, and called for Ford, Ford. Presently a reply came, muffled by the distance. From the room below, I've put in another clause. The old man called over the stair. Ford below opened the door of the parlour to listen. Bless me, have you indeed, Mr. Trevor, he replied with less enthusiasm. Come up, come up, and you shall hear it, said the other, fidgeting with excitement. Then he returned to his easy chair, laughing to himself under his breath. He bent over the document and read it again. They'll keep her straight. They'll keep her straight among them, he said to himself. She'll be clever if she goes wrong after all this. And then he sat down again, chuckling and tucking the times like a napkin over his knees. All this time he had not been alone, but his companion was not one who claimed much notice. There was spread before the fire a large milky white rug, like those that stopped the draught from the windows, and upon this half buried in the fur lay a small boy in knickerbockers, absorbed in a book. The child was between seven and eight. He was dressed in a blue velveteen suit, somewhat shabby, He was small, even for his age. His face was a little pale face, with fair and rather lanky locks. Sometimes he would lie on his back with his book supported upon his chest. Sometimes the other way, with the book on the rug and his head a little raised, leaning on his hands. This was his attitude at present. He took no notice of his father, nor his father of him. He was a kind of postscript to old Mr. Trevor's life. No one had expected him. No one had wanted him. When he chose to come into the world, it was his own risk so to speak. He had been permitted to live and had been called John, a good, safe, serviceable name, but no special encouragement of any other kind had been given to him to pursue the thankless path of existence. Nevertheless, little Jock had done so in a dogged sort of way. He had been delicate, but he had always gone on all the same.
Lately, he had found the best of all allies and defenders in his sister, but no one else took much notice of him, nor he of them, and his father and he paid no attention to each other. Mr. Trevor took care not to stumble over him, being thoroughly accustomed to his presence. And as for little Jock, he never stirred. He was on the rug in the body, but in the soul he was in the forest of the Ardennes, or tilting on the Spanish roads with Don Quixote. It was wonderful, some people thought, that such a baby should read at all, or reading that he should have any books above the level of those that are written in three syllables. But the child had no baby books, and therefore he took what he could get. Are not the baby books a snare and delusion, keeping children out of their inheritance? How can they understand Shakespeare, you will say? And I suppose Jock did not understand. Yet that great person pervaded the very air about this little person, so that it glowed and shone. Only his shoulders raised a little way out of the white silky fluff of the rug, betrayed the immovable creature, and his book was almost lost altogether in it. There he lay, thinking nothing of how his life was to run, or of the influences which might be developing around him. There was not a piece of furniture in the room which counted for less with Mr. Trevor than Little Jock. Ford was a long time coming. He had some business of his own on hand, which though not half so important, was on the whole more interesting to him than Mr. Trevor's business. And then he had the little augmentation with Mrs. Ford before he could get away. What is it now? Mrs. Ford said fretfully. What does he make such a fuss about? Sure there's nothing so very wonderful in making a will. I'd say I leave all I have to my children and there would be an end of it. He makes as much of it as if it was a book that he was writing. Many a book has been written with less fuss. My dear, said Ford, there are many people who can write books and cannot make a will. Indeed, the most of them have no need to, if all we hear is true, and you don't give a thought to the interests, I may say the colossal interests that are involved. Oh, poo-poo, said Mrs. Ford. 
I think our own interests, if you please, which are all I care for. Is he going to leave us anything? That is what I want to know. I am sorry you are so mercenary, my dear. I am not mercenary, Mr. Ford, but I like to see an inch before me and know what it is to become of me. He's failing fast, anyone can see that. And if we're left with the lease of a big house on our hands, this was the danger that afflicted Mrs. Ford at all moments and robbed her of her peace. Staff, Ford said, he knew a great deal about the important literary composition which the old gentleman was concocting, but he was not at liberty to mention what he knew. Sometimes it made him laugh secretly within himself to think how differently she would talk if she too knew. But then that is the case in most matters. He went upstairs at last deliberately counting every step while Mr. Trevor sat impatient in his great chair full of the enthusiasm of his own work and thinking every minute an hour till he could show his friend who was entirely in his confidence who almost seemed like his collaborator the last stroke he had made it was the magnum opus of Mr. Trevor's life the work by which he hoped to be remembered, to attain that immortality in the recollection of other men which all men desire. For a long time he had been working at it, a little bit at a time as it occurred to him. He was not like the thriftless literary persons to whom Ford compared him, who write whether they have anything to say or not, whether the fountain is welling forth freely or has to be pumped up drop by drop. Mr. Trevor composed his great work under the most favourable conditions. He had it by him constantly, night and day, and when something occurred to him, if it were in the middle of the night, he would get up and wrap his dressing gown round his shrunken person and put it down. He might not forget it either sleeping or waking. It was a resource for his imagination an occupation for his life. Also, it was likely to prove a considerable source of occupation to others after his death. If nobody stepped in to nick it into shape. When he heard Ford's step on the stairs, he began to chuckle again already enjoying the surprise and admiration 
which he felt his last new idea must call forth. Ford was a very good literary confidant. He would find fault with a trifle now and then, which made his general approbation all the more valuable, as showing that there was discrimination in it. Mr. Trevor put away the times from his knees, and drew the blotting book with its precious contents a little nearer. He waited with as much impatience as a lover would show for the appearance of his love. And he had time to take off his spectacles, clean them carefully, rubbing them with his handkerchief, and put them on again with great deliberation before Ford. After very carefully and audibly closing the door behind him, appeared at last on the inner side of the screen, which kept out the draught, that draught which rushed up the narrow ravine of the staircase, as up an alpine couloir, white with snow. John Trevor had been a schoolmaster for the greater part of his life. How he acquired so well sounding a name nobody knew. He had no relations, he always said, in the male line, and his friends on his mother's side were people of undistinguished surnames. And for the first fifty years of his life, he had maintained a very even tenor of existence, always respectable, always a man who kept his engagements, paid his way, gave his entire attention, as his circulars said, to the pupils confided to his care. But even in his schoolmastership, there was nothing of a remarkable character. After passing many obscure years as an usher, he attained to an academy of his own, in which a sound religious and commercial education was ensured, as the same circular informed the parents and guardians of a farrow field by the employment of most competent masters for all the branches included in the course and by his own unremitting care. But often the masters at Mr. Trevor's academy were represented solely by himself, and the number of his pupils never embarrassed or overweighted him. The good man, however, worked his way all the same. He kept afloat, which so many find it impossible to do. If the number of scholars diminished, he lived harder, and when it increased, he laid by a little. He was never extravagant, never forgot that his occupation was a precarious one, and thus turning out a few credible arithmeticians to fill up 
the places in the little offices of Farfield, the solicitors, the auctioneers, the big builders, and even in the better shops, where they were the best of cashiers, never wrong in a total, he lived on from year to year. His house was but a dingy one, with a large room for his pupils, and two upstairs, shabby enough, in which he lived, but by dint of sheer continuance and respectability. John Trevor, by the time he was fifty, was as much respected in Farrowfield as a man leading such a virtuous, colourless, joyless, unblameable existence has a right to be. And that concludes tonight's readings. I hope you've enjoyed it, but I also hope you're feeling drowsy. You're welcome to listen to another episode if you're not quite tired yet. In the meantime, I'll be working on bringing you a new episode very soon. Good night.